You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, it's cold. We're starting to hunker down for winter, but that's not going to stop us turn up the temperature a little bit on another Middle East Analysis podcast. Now, I thought the man who owns the voice behind Middle East Analysis would be opposite me today, in the flesh. But it wasn't to be. Oh well. But it's still a very warm welcome to Dr. Harry Hagopian. Dr. Harry Hagopian, how are you? Hello, James. It's a pleasure to hear your voice. And I do agree with you as you described me, the voice behind Middle East analysis. I would have loved to be sitting in front of you and doing this after such a long time face to face where the interaction would be far more enjoyable, I think. But unfortunately, it didn't work. So hopefully we will manage to do it uh, for the next episode. In the meantime, you're absolutely right. Uh, Temperatures are becoming increasingly more autumnal and sort of dipping. But at the same time, let's be careful because COVID rates are going up as well. Yeah, much to be a little bit cautious of as we head into winter. Now, three key topics I'd say today, but that's Mm -hmm. not the full meat in the sandwich because I hear you have four afterthoughts. Now, that might even be a a record even for Middle East analysis. It is a record, I think, because whenever we do afterthoughts and you kindly agree to finish the episode with those afterthoughts, we usually do one or two. But uh, this time I managed to get into my head four afterthoughts that I'd like to share Uh, with our listeners. And they are called afterthoughts. I call them afterthoughts, but they are, I think they're quite relevant thoughts. And uh, you kindly agreed to allow me to articulate those four. Well, I'm looking forward to it, but let's not get ahead of ourselves because they're often the the intriguing bits of the podcast. So yes, we won't relegate them to, to simple afterthoughts and we'll look forward to them. So what are we discussing? Well, today we're going to talk a little bit Lebanon. We've done it in, in the last two podcasts, actually. Post Tayune, uh, that neighbourhood in the capital Beirut that saw violent clashes erupt, killing some seven and injuring 32 after a protest organised by Hezbollah and allies against Tarek Bita, who I believe is the judge who heads up Beirut's criminal court. So we'll get the lowdown from you on that. But we'll then also, of course, be talking about the recent elections in Iraq, delayed from June 2021, held on the 10th of October to elect the Iraqi president and confirm the prime minister. But there's a bit more to it than meets the eye there. So I'm very interested in what you have to say. And the third prong is a piece that we'll do on Yemen. I'm I'm really interested in this because my heart sinks when we talk and contemplate Yemen, unfortunately. So we need an update, really, on what seems to be a never ending war. But Harry, you want us to start with Iraq, don't you? Yes, I think I'd like us to start with Iraq because it's the most current in a sense and it's something that's very topical and that's the elections that took place uh, on the 10th of October, just about uh, 10-11 days ago. And those elections, James, the turnout was extremely low, only 34%, but they were quite interesting elections. Why? Because I think they were impacted to quite a large degree by the protest movement that erupted in Iraq and particularly in Baghdad and in the southern uh, provinces as far back as October 2019, in other words, uh, two years ago. Now, what happened in these elections is that the protest movement, which is known as Al-Harak in Arabic, had called for basic services in during the election time, a solution to the politically sanctioned uh, corruption, and an end to the Mukhassas al-Ta'ifiyye. Now, what is Mukhassas al-Ta'ifiyye? It's the sectarian political makeup in the country. In the place of those three things, what these protesters had been asking since October 2019, and they were campaigning on this 
during the election run-up to the elections. They wanted a sense of secular nationalism and a united Iraqi identity, which is very interesting because if you look across some countries, we're going to talk about Lebanon briefly later on as well, this whole idea of the sectarian political makeup versus an Iraqi or a national identity is at the heart of a lot of what is happening in uh, in some Arab countries today. So as a consequence or as a result of these elections, there were a few surprises. The first one, which is not so much of a surprise, but I think still it, it managed to raise a few eyebrows, is that the Sadrists, in other words, those under the leadership of Muqtada Sadr, were the clear winners. They increased the seats they'd garnered in uh, 2018. They had, I think, 54 seats then, to 73 in 2021. And what was more interesting than the win, the victory of the Sadrists overall in this election, is that uh, the major losses that some of the establishment parties experienced. One of them, for those in Iraq who know these things, was the Fatah Alliance. But Sadrists and Fatah apart, what really was quite telling in the elections is that the opposition Imtidad movement, Imtidad means spreading out, extension, reaching out. The Imtidad movement, which was at the core of the opposition protest movement and was running for the first time, received a total of some 300,000 votes in these elections, and they managed to get nine seats. Now, 300,000 for a 34% turnout is not bad. It's quite sizable in terms of numbers of uh, votes. And it shows, I think, huge popularity uh, by this new protest movement in comparison, I suppose, to the traditional elite forces. But when you translate those votes to only nine seats, what does it remind you of? It reminds you of the system we have in the United Kingdom. Why? Because the new elections this year in Iraq were based on a first-past-the-post system which means that citizens vote directly for a candidate in a particular district and the most votes win. So what this meant is that a lot of the people who voted for the opposition protest uh, parties did not see their votes translate into elected members of parliament, pretty much what happens uh, here with us in the UK. And finally, what I would add is that in addition to Imtidad, which was really at the heart of the uh, protest movements in Iraq, other independent uh, parties and candidates won too. I would like to mention here, because I know there are a lot of people from Kurdistan and of Kurdish backgrounds who, who listen to our MEA uh, monthly episodes, the Kurdish New Generation Movement also won nine seats, while independent candidates won some 37, I think, seats. So what happened is that these opposition, new parties, independent forces, whatever you want to call them, they actually met in Najaf in Iraq on the 18th of October, I think, in order to try and form an opposition bloc within parliament, which would at least put together have 25 seats. Now, what would this do? This would give them a bit of a quorum to call for parliamentary investigations against corrupt politicians, against those who are accused of using violence, etc., etc. And between new generation and empty dad, they will not participate or they will show their opposition to this sectarian uh, which I just uh, talked about, this sectarian sense of allegiance, and hopefully they will be able to increase their popularity and introduce some reforms, much, much needed reforms in, uh, in uh, Iraq. Will it work? Can they work together, the opposition? We've seen this time and time again. 
the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But what happens on the road to hell is the big question mark. And can they also remain independent? Or are the systems in some of these countries, including Iraq, so much weighing in favor of this sectarian makeup that they will not be able uh, to resist and they will be co-opted somehow because at the end of the day, uh, people are influenced. So I don't know, fingers crossed. I hope this is the a flicker of hope, the beginning, a certain beginning in the country. Muqtada Sadr has always uh, promoted himself as the man of the people and particularly the man of the poor people because a lot of his popularity is in the uh, slum neighborhoods of uh, the country, of Baghdad and other places. Will he be able to introduce a fresh, non-corrupt approach to politics? Will those independent and opposition parties manage to weigh in on the debate? James, I have no idea. You know, the more I uh, watch the region, the more I realize that I'm not a prophet. (laughs) It's been a podcast or two since we've heard that. I'm glad that's come back out again. No, (laughs) very fair point. In fact, you got me thinking about proportional representation. I thought, crikey, can that even work in the Middle East, North Africa? I don't imagine that would be particularly easy. It would certainly throw up some interesting results, wouldn't it? But nonetheless, Harry, I I think the one question I do want to ask you as a little postscript to this one is that obviously these were supposed to occur, these elections, in June, but they've been held back. And I, I guess my question would be, Do you believe that these were free and fair elections because that's what they were holding out for? Well, that's a very good question, James. What are free and fair elections uh, in the Middle East, North Africa? But when the election results came out, the victors, particularly the Sadrist movement, was very happy to confirm that those uh, results are legitimate. The opposition parties, the protest movements that got some seats were happy enough to to have the system allow them to get some seats. So I don't think they were going to make much noise. But those who lost are the people who kept crying out that this is wrong, this was all corrupt, that the system was weighed against them, that this system was also inherently, although I would dispute that a bit, weighed against uh, Iranian, pro-Iranian parties such as the Fatah Alliance, which are associated with the uh, mobilization forces in uh, Iraq. All this was said, but interestingly enough, for all its worth, the monitors of these elections Uh, be they local Iraqi or international monitors, all of them said that the elections were as fair as they could have been. And so I would say that they were not less fair than other elections. And the people who are crying out and shouting out about their losses are probably in some way also suffering from a very acute attack of sour grapes. Well, as always, Harry, time will tell. But let's hope it is something of a a positive future for Iraq after all the turmoil of of several decades now. Now, talking of turmoil, unfortunately, um, that's one of the words that springs to mind when we talk about Yemen. Now, I don't really know where we can start with this. There are several things. Why don't we start by putting this awful war in context? UNICEF, for instance, has said that 10,000 children have been killed or maimed since 2015. I mean, what can you say about that? Will this cycle of violence, Harry, ever end? And and does the rest of the world care enough? Well, these are two very, very relevant and very good questions, James. Will it ever end and will the world care about it? Yemen is one of those forgotten wars. It's one of those places where few people have been. I've been lucky enough, fortunate enough to have visited the country in a previous life 
when I was an intellectual property lawyer, and I love the country, I love its architecture, I love the hospitality of the people and the landscape. It is absolutely beautiful. And of course, a lot of people only associate the Yemenis with the Qat, which they chew on when they're talking. But there is so much more to Yemen than that. However, Yemen has changed quite radically or has been forced to change quite radically. So for most people who haven't even got a clue as to why do we talk about the war, what war, let me try and encapsulate that uh, in a few minutes, if I may, James, to give an idea of what is happening. Let's go back to 2014. 2014 was when we were having the Arab uprisings and revolutionary movements across the Arab world. Yemen also became embroiled in a civil war in 2014 when the Houthis movement swept across much of the north of the country and seized the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, forcing the internationally recognized government, which had its headquarters in the capital, Sana'a, into exile in the south. Now, the first question that some people might ask is, you're talking about Houthis sweeping across much of the north. Who are the Houthis? Well, the Houthis are, in a nutshell, a large clan which originate from Yemen's northwestern Sa'da province. They practice a form of Shiism called the Zaidi Shiism, and they make up around 25 to 30 percent of Yemen's population, whilst the remaining 70 odd percent basically follow the traditional Sunni teachings of Islam. Now, that is in 2014, and that is the Houthi movement for you. Now, what happened after that? Well, after that, uh, the Saudi Arabian-led intervention in Yemen, which is what we keep hearing on about, was launched on the 26th of March 2015, which is six years ago. And the Saudis led a coalition of nine countries at the time from both West Asia and North Africa. And why did they move in? Why did they go into uh, intervene in Yemen because they were, they said, they were responding to calls from the president of Yemen, Abd Rabbo Mansur Hadi, for military support after he was ousted by the Houthi movement. So, you had the Houthis sweep the north, take the capital Sana'a. We explained who are the Houthis. We then said, why did Saudi Arabia come in? Because the president of Yemen, who fled the capital to the south, asked the Saudis, help us restore law and order in the country. But the Saudis did not only decide to lead this coalition at the time, nine countries at the beginning, uh, when they thought, oh, it's only a matter of a few weeks or a couple of months, and then we'll get the country under control. They also did this because they were worried that the Houthi movement would be very pro-Iran. And of course, we all know about the problems between Saudi Arabia and Iran. However, once the intervention started, what happened was not in the calculus of the war. The Houthis strengthened their grip. And since 2020, in other words, five years into the war, Yemeni and international observers have now been viewing the battle for the Ma'rib governorate, which is the potential tipping war point in the war. Now, where is Ma'rib? Ma'rib is also in the uh, north. And the Houthis at the beginning were constrained in their ability to launch a push into South Ma'rib because of opposing forces in an adjoining place called Al-Bayda, and in a neighboring place called Shibwa. I'm sorry if I'm confusing people, but listen, dear listeners, I'm doing my best to summarize something. However, the, both the Houthis and the government saw Al-Bayda as being critical to the war, and the fighting there has been very, very sharp. Why? What is important about Al-Baida's location? Al-Baida borders 
eight other governorates, and it provides access to many areas of the country. Therefore, it makes it decisive to the current conflict. Now, the Houthis have been pushing in three directions to take land that is controlled by the government, Ma'rib, Shabwa, and Abiyan. They've achieved two things. One, this provides them with a potential offensive into the southern Ma'rib area, and then it also helps them cut off or at least threaten connecting roads between government forces. Now, you might tell me, why is Ma'rib so important for the Houthis? It is important because in the north, it is one of the richest oil resource areas. And if the Houthis manage to control that, then they are also managing to have a potential financial income uh, for them. So what they have been trying to do, amongst other things, in order to be able to get into southern Ma'rib, is to communicate with one of the most powerful tribal uh, people in uh, tribes, let's say, in that part of the world, which is the Murad uh, Ma'ribi tribe. Now, they're powerful. They're in the Al-Juba district. And these people have not really been supporting the Houthis, but there have been negotiations. There's a nine-point agreement with them to try and find a way whereby the Houthis and the tribe would control this area together. All this is basically in order to control the northern half of the country by the Houthis and also to be a counteroffensive to what's happening in the south because in the south the situation is not any better. There is a lot of fighting between the government forces who fled the north and went south and the pro-independent southern transitional council there. Now, who are they? They are people that are trying to take over the running of the country in the south, and the government is not happy. Now, I will stop here. I'm not going to complicate life anymore unless you want me by asking me a question or two. What I would only say to conclude is really the bit that gives me grief, that pains me. And you will know what I mean in a second. Because the U.S. today, under Trump formerly and under Biden now, is far less interested in this war. And they are basically, they realize that the Saudis did a big mistake by jumping in in 2015. And they, the Americans are retrenching, are drawing away from the region anyway. So they don't want to get more involved in uh, uh, military exercises. And the STC, this Southern Transitional Council that is opposed to the legitimate government, if I can put it that way, between inverted commas of Yemen, they're basically backed by the United Arab Emirates. And a lot of people, Arab countries and non-Arabs, are asking why is the UAE so much involved in Yemen? This brings me to my final point, which is where my pain, my grief becomes more crystalline. There is something called Sokatra Island. Sokatra Island is one of four islands in an archipelago that is south of the Arabian uh, Peninsula. In other words, James in the Indian Ocean. It's the biggest of the four. Sokatra Island is a UNESCO site. It's protected by the UNESCO. Why? because it's a beautiful, it has been a beautiful nature reserve. And it's got in it really surreal landscapes, beautiful sand dunes and deep canyons. Remember, I told you I, was, I visited Yemen in the good old days when there was no war as we know it today. But other than canyons, dunes or whatever, it's also got something, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this, there's something called the dragon blood tree. It's got lots of blood, uh, dragon blood trees, and they are beautiful. I bet you, if you Google, anybody of our listeners, just Google uh, dragon blood trees, it will show you the island of Sokatra, and it will show you those 
tree. It's a beautiful area. It's not a particularly rich area, but it's very nice. It's a huge area. It's hugely underpopulated as well, but and it's tribal, but it's really, really beautiful. Unfortunately, this Socotra Island and this archipelago as a whole is being destroyed by the war. And part of it is because the United Arab Emirates, I believe, have decided to use this as one of their military uh, headquarters. Why? Why destroy this? I mean, there have been reports that some of those uh, dragon blood trees have been uh, uprooted and taken to the Emirates. Allegedly, I don't know if it's true. I have no proof. So don't come shouting back at me. But a place like this, one of the very few oases in the region, and it's being violated as well. And to go there now, interestingly enough, if you want to visit Sukatra, which is part of Yemen, you have to get a visa from the United Arab Emirates to go there. Well, that raises a big question in my head. So this is where Yemen is. This is what the situation is. The Houthis swept from the north. The government fled to the south. The Houthis are trying to strengthen their position in the north and capture the oil-rich and uh, resource-friendly Ma'rib governorate. Uh, The government in the south is now in conflict with this Southern Transitional uh, Council. And this island, a beautiful island, is one of the many... Uh, victims of a war that shouldn't have even started in 2015 when people thought, oh, this is easy, easy peasy. No, it's not easy peasy. And this is where we are in uh, uh, Yemen today. And if you open your television, your BBC World News or whatever it is, you listen to Sky or Channel 4 News, and they talk about Yemen. These days, for the last two, three weeks, they've been talking about, if they talk about it, they've been talking about Ma'rib. And why Ma'rib? I just told you why Ma'rib. Because it will strengthen the Houthi movement in the north. And I stop here, uh, James, with an apology if my explanation sounded a bit confusing. No, not at all, Harry. I thought it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. But it's funny because I think about Yemen and also places like Haiti and they're sort of the suffering of the people is almost in plain sight, isn't it? And I think the the one small question I'll ask you is that I, I did notice that in terms of war crimes, a group of human rights lawyers apparently are going to file a legal complaint in the UK accusing some 20 political and military figures in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as you've just mentioned, of crimes against humanity. I presume that's somewhat symbolic to to just raise Yemen into some form of consciousness. Is that right? It is to raise uh, Yemen into some form of consciousness. And it is also to say that, I mean, James, there is impunity galore around the the world and certainly in that neck of the woods. And this is just one way to try and restrain any further deleterious actions. I mean, you can't just go in and bomb people to uh, kingdom come just because you can do it or just because you don't like what they're doing or just because you're worried that they are aligning themselves with a a power that is inimical with your interests. So yes, this is happening. I mean, this is the same thing. There are all these well-meaning legal uh, uh, efforts and uh, human rights think tanks that are doing this in places like Yemen, in places like Syria, some of them are can be found in the Netherlands and in other parts of the world where they're really uh, trying hard to push back this sense of impunity and this sense of populism that is so rife in the world and that is running amok with a lot of uh, the established order. Now, the established order is not necessarily the best thing uh, since uh, sliced bread, granted, But then what it's being replaced with is not necessarily so either, because at the end of the day, it is the rich and powerful trying to crunch the hopes and wishes of those less rich and less powerful. 
Yeah, isn't it always? Well, no, thank you for that, Harry, and for the context and the history, because I believe we needed it. I certainly needed it. And um, yeah, we we look on and and I I guess we have to hope and pray, as we always do, that some positive change with with a humanitarian um, heart at the centre of it will will actually come about for, for Yemen. Now, Lebanon, Harry, because we've talked about Lebanon over the last two podcasts uh, as the main item, I think, on on those podcasts. Now, we're not going to dredge up things that we've already talked about or things that have moved on somewhat since we last spoke about this. But we have seen some of the worst street violence in over a decade, haven't we? And and the economic meltdown is, is still very much in play there. The question I wanted to ask you was, when will Lebanon be allowed to stop sinking and start swimming? (laughs) <laughs> I, I like that, James. Lebanon is also one of these countries that, as you know full well, is very close to my heart. Let me, let me put it this way, and I'm going to be far more succinct with Lebanon because I don't want to uh, overload our listeners with the details, but also because, as you said yourself, we've done Lebanon quite often and we hadn't really dealt with Yemen properly. Lebanon, in my opinion, has been, not only in my opinion, mind you, in the opinion of many people, has been trapped for decades in a quagmire. Some people would not use the word quagmire. They would say they would describe it as a culture of impunity, which offered a binary choice for ordinary Lebanese men and women. What was this choice? This choice was choose between justice and accountability or civil peace. In other words, if you don't want civil war and you don't want violence, just shut up, forget justice and accountability, and go for civil peace. To a large extent, that was post the civil war in Lebanon from 75 to 1991, That was something that most Lebanese were willy-nilly applying. The Lebanese are very, very instinctive people. They know when to speak and when not to. It was happening until uh, the protest movements in Lebanon in the second wave of revolutionary uprisings in the Arab world started. People went in the streets in massive numbers and completely disregarding sectarian affiliations and wanted change. That was met, pushed back, as it always does, by counter-revolutionary forces, and it was contained. Why was it contained? Because the pushback was strong, but also because COVID came into play and frightened people and got them off the streets. Then we had this big explosion at the port of Beirut a horrific crime that basically wiped out parts of the capital Beirut, resulted in deaths, injured people. Uh, As a consequence of that, the president of uh, Lebanon said that there will be a commission of inquiry and investigation that will immediately and very promptly come up with a conclusion as to who is to blame for this explosion. Why did we have those tons of ammonium nitrate stored rather haphazardly in the port? Who brought them in? Who kept them there? And what were they doing there? All this will be investigated. A judge, an investigative judge was appointed, Judge uh, Fadi Sawan, and the answer should have come out. But of course, those who have vested interests who knew about this, did not want the truth to come out. So political pressure was applied. The investigating judge resigned. And another judge, Tariq Bitar, whom you mentioned in the intro to this MEA episode, came into office and he has been hell-bent on trying to find out what exactly lurked behind this explosion of the 4th of August 2020, just over a year ago. And the violence that you referred to 
now and earlier on in this episode in Payune, which is an area that includes Christians in Ain al-Rumani, that includes Shia Muslims and Shia, and it's an area that was basically the dividing line between what was then known as East or West Beirut during the Civil War. And at the moment, this guy is, this judge, this lead judge, who's the head of the first criminal court in Beirut, is moving forward, trying to find what happened, uh, what prompted this explosion. And therefore, there is more and more pressure being weighed against him to force him to leave his office and relinquish uh, his uh, brief. And the situation at the moment is almost like either he goes or the country is going to go back into a violence that nobody wants and uh, Lebanon can ill afford. And this is yet again another example, James, I think, of uh, Lebanon's sectarian power sharing uh, system, which has proved impossible to bring down. The protests that I told you about a couple of years ago have been quashed. Warlords, who later became heads of political parties, have cast themselves as the sect's protectors. This sect, that sect, I'm a Shia, no, I'm a Sunni, no, I'm a Maronite, no, I'm a Greek Orthodox, no, I'm an Armenian Orthodox, whatever. They've become the protectors of these sectarian communities, granting them favors. So in all this mess, a new prime minister came about, Najib Miqati, who basically had only two things to do. In fact, has only two things to do. One, to lead Lebanon toward parliamentary elections next March, in March 2022. Secondly, to negotiate with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, a recovery plan that will give a breather to the Lebanese, 70% of whom now are under the poverty line because of the economic meltdown you talked about, to get this recovery plan and give some life to the Lebanese. If he manages those two things, then hallelujah. But with this specter of violence, with the increased pressure on the judge, will he leave, won't he leave? Will he be forced to relinquish his brief or not? Things are extremely taut, extremely tense in the country. And the question, of course, is whether this will derail the elections, whether the IMF and other organizations will give money to Lebanon to keep it afloat, because Lebanon is not a failed state, but it is a failing state. And if we do not help, if the world community doesn't help, if the United States, the European Union, other organizations, the World Bank, the IMF don't help, this country with all its 4 million population, with all the refugees in there, 1 million Syrians and some Palestinians and uh, Iraqis in there as well, is going downhill very fast. So much so that, I mean, we've talked about this, James, They want medicine for cancer, for cholesterol, statins, for this, for that. There is no medicine. You want bread from the wooden bakery. You might not find bread at the wooden bakery. You want to go and renew your passport. You might not be able to renew your passport at the passport office because they've run out of paper. You want to go to the uh, petrol station to uh, put some petrol in your car. Okay, we had the same story here in the UK for two weeks and we freaked out because of the queues. Put yourselves in the Lebanese uh, position of months and years of having to be humiliated time and again by a clutch of people at the top who refuse to uh, accept or acknowledge reality. And of course, we find ourselves in a dark tunnel. So from sinking to swimming, from finding the light at the end of the dark tunnel, again, I don't know, James, I don't know. I'm not a prophet, but I've long time ago, I've given up on the traditional way when we used to analyze events by saying that the world is so confused 
And in a confusion, you never know what's going to happen. And so I hope that they will have elections. I hope that the IMF will be able to negotiate a recovery plan with the government. I hope that the Lebanese, just as I do the Iraqis, just as I do the Yemenis, just as I do the Libyans, just as I do the Syrians, just as I do the Palestinians, just as I do the Sudanese, and it goes on and on, that they will be viewed, treated as human beings, and as human beings, they will be given the dignity that they so deserve. Yeah, totally, Harry. Very well said as well. Now, one thing I would like to point out, I'd like to give a little plug to something that you're doing this weekend on Sunday, the 24th of October. Uh And that is, I guess it is to raise up Lebanon, to pray for Lebanon, to think about Lebanon, to reflect on Lebanon, to enjoy Lebanese music. I mean, we have Fairuz, the Lebanese diva, opening and closing our podcast and have had for over a decade, Harry. Now, What you have is you have an event that is an online-only event, a streamed event, from the Catholic Church in Kensington, Our Lady of Victories in central London. And it's it's going to be, how would you describe it, a, a celebration of Lebanon, a, a point of focus, a time to, to hold Lebanon and its people up in prayer? How would you describe it, Harry? I would describe it as a moment of hope for Lebanon, I would describe it as a way of introducing Lebanon, which has been described, incidentally, as you know far better than I, not only as a country but as a message by no other than uh, uh, Pope John Paul uh, II. Uh, I want to to introduce Lebanon to a lot of the uh, people in uh, in England, in London, across the UK and elsewhere, to remind them that there is a reality there that is worth our reflection, that is worth our prayers, and that is worth the hope that we all invest in Lebanon. This is what we're going to do. And uh, other than, as you said, uh, Fairuz being sung, sung by a chorister there. Uh, the Lebanese would know the song. It's called Wahhabibi. Another song by Fairuz, Li Beirut, which is going to be played by the chief organist of uh, Our Lady of Victory's Church uh, in Kensington. There's going to be a reading in Arabic. And also, I suppose, if I'm going to uh, try and pat myself on the back, uh, the parish priest of Our Lady of Victories, Monsignor James Curry and I are going to sit together and for about 20 minutes or so, uh, we're going to discuss a little bit. We agreed to do it differently. He's going to ask me a few questions on Lebanon and I'm going to provide a few answers just to make Lebanon more familiar. Why? Because in this country, we're so much taken up by, oh, Brexit is still on the agenda. COVID is still on the agenda. Are we going to go to plan B or are we going to stay with plan A? The dreadful uh, murder of Sir David Amos, uh, which uh, which follows that of Joe Cox five years ago, uh, is very much preying on our minds. We're so much into our own issues that we sometimes forget that on the face of this world, there is a world outside our island. And our one hour virtual reality, call it that, is a way of saying there is something next door. They're our neighbors. Let's think of them. Everybody can uh, click on the live streaming link that takes them to the church and uh, they can watch. And by watching, they can show their uh, support. And it's going to stay on the website of the church for one month. So even if you don't watch it on the day, you have one month later to click on that and and watch it. Great. So that's Sunday, the 24th of October from 4 till 5 p.m. UK time to stress that. The church is Our Lady of Victories in Kensington. And if you want to watch that and and don't know what the church's website is, put it into your search engine, whichever search engine you use, or go to churchservices.tv and then just put into the search box Our Lady of Victories. And it should, should come up then and you can listen to that. What promises to be an excellent event. Now, look, it's it's rare that I hear you declare 
that there are going to be four additional points to be made at the end of our podcast. We have called them afterthoughts in the past, but um, you got me thinking. I thought, well, is this going to be perhaps something quirky, like a 900-year-old crusader sword found off the coast of Israel? You know, one metre long and covered in marine life like barnacles and so forth. Or is this going to be something, you know, really from left field that I'll know nothing about? So why don't you surprise me with your first point? Well, interestingly enough, James, it's not going to be about a crusader sword. I saw that story. I saw a picture of the sword and uh, all of that. And actually, I didn't even think about it. If I had thought long and hard, I probably would have added it to my afterthoughts. But no, I'm not going to talk about swords and crusaders. The first point, I've already shown my hand a little bit because I was going to talk about the murder of Sir David Amos. It's hit me. I didn't know the man. I had never heard of the man, actually. I didn't know that he championed uh, unpopular causes, but that he was such a charming man who helped everybody because everybody has got a very nice word about uh, him. Uh, I didn't know any of this. But over and above the man, there is the principle. And the principle is, and it's been repeated now four or five times, of a sitting member of parliament being killed, being murdered. And that worries me because that goes to the very heart of democracy, silencing people who are there in their surgeries, meeting people, going and shaking hands with people, talking to them, helping somebody, I don't know, set up a crowdfunding exercise or going and doing an opening at a charity event or whatever. This is what makes a member of parliament in this country so attractive, so popular. And this is also their job. So to try and do this and instill fear into the hearts of people that they say, oh, we must have policemen, burly policemen standing at the door of our surgeries. We should put those frames, electronic frames, or that we should cancel uh, surgeries altogether. That would completely modify our understanding, not only of British democracy, but of the way our political system works. And therefore, my first thought, and I, by the way, I really enjoy listening to Lisa Nandy. Now, Lisa Nandy, dear listeners, if you don't know her, she's Labour MP for Wigan, and she holds a shadow post in Sir Keith Starmer's shadow government. But she always speaks sense, because I think she comes from an NGO background, so she knows what she's talking about. And she was on Sunday with uh, Mar. And he asked her about this, and she said something which really resonated with me when she talked about the death and the murder of Sir David Amos. She said, we must view this event not with anger, but with determination. And that stuck with me. And because that means a lot of things to me, and I'll leave it for our listeners to figure out what they understand or what their own background would sort of explain to them about not only the event, the murder, but also looking at it not with anger, because anger is very quick, but with determination, which is much more thought out. So that's basically my first afterthought on Sir David Amos. Well, I mean, obviously, our, our thoughts and prayers are with his family and, and friends. And he, he clearly was a, a colossus in many ways, despite not really holding ministerial positions. But he, he championed a, a lot of causes and um, really was a great man from everything I've seen and heard. And as far as I can understand, also a very good Catholic. The second afterthought for me, James, is Rifat al-Assad. Rifat al-Assad is the brother of Hafiz al-Assad. Hafiz al-Assad is the former president of Syria, whose son Bashar al-Assad is now president in Syria. Rifat al-Assad tried to get rid of his brother many, many years ago, and for his efforts, he fled the country and went and settled in France, and he was flush with money. So he bought estates, property, etc., etc., and then he was taken to court in France for uh, fraudulent exercises, and uh, he was going to be imprisoned. He then suddenly found himself back in Damascus, in Syria. Now, a few things about Rifat al-Assad. First of all, he is 
many people attribute to him the massacres in Syria of Hama and Tadmur. And uh, these were horrendous massacres against ordinary people who rose up against the regime many, many years before we started even talking about the so-called Arab Spring. He was somebody who couldn't have left France to flee back to Syria and avoid prison sentence were it not for the connivance of some authority, some government, some system which allowed him to sort of leave France and go to uh, back to Syria. Interestingly enough, uh, he went back to Syria where I would have thought that he wouldn't be a very welcome uh, family member either. But the fact that he left France and he managed to leave France makes me also question about our own Western values when it comes to human rights, to politics, to all these issues that we we talk about. Because I was surprised, I was really surprised. I thought, oh, how did he leave France and go back to Syria, where he was persona non grata anyway? Interesting. But my second afterthought for people who haven't heard of him or who didn't know the story is Rifat al-Assad. My third story is something that is quite quite close to my heart as well. It's an interesting afterthought, this one, James. Many, many, many years ago, when I was in short trousers, my grandparents and parents used to take me to the Dead Sea. And they used to take me to our house. My grandfather owned a house which was a weekend winter resort in a very nice suburb of Jericho uh, called Mashru al-Alami. And we used to go there and we used to spend the weekend there because Jericho is very warm in winter. It's very nice. It's got a very, very laid back approach to life compared to other parts of uh, Palestine. And we would go there and then we'd also go and visit the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea and Jericho are some 430 meters below sea level, which is one of the lowest in the world. And when we used to go to the Dead Sea, it was hilarious because I don't know how much you know about the Dead Sea, but it's also the saltiest lake or sea in the world. It is so... There you go. It's so salty that you actually, when you go in, you can't sink because you float given the amount of salt in it. Now, an admission, I've never learned how to swim. So I am not a a water person, I'm a mountain person. When I was living in Cyprus, the water was about 20 minutes away from me. I used to take my car and go and spend my weekends in the mountains in Trovos and Platres and other places because I love the mountains and I love the smell of the mountains and the trees in the evenings. So I'm not a water person. I'm a mountain person. But we used to go there and I used to dip into the water as well because it's supposed to be medicinal with so much minerals and salts in it, etc., etc. So this is the Dead Sea I know. Anyway, fast forward to 2021, and the afterthought is about a nude photo installation by an American photographer called Spencer Tunick. He actually, a few days ago, assembled 300 nude bodies near the Dead Sea, painted them white. Why white? It's a recreation of the biblical story of Lot's wife who turns into a pillar of salt. Why? Because the Dead Sea has so much salt in it, and also because it happened in that very area, this biblical story. He painted them in white and took pictures of them in order to alert people, and he's done this before, but he did it much more professionally this time, to alert people of the receding water levels of the Dead Sea. And this is something that's been going on for years. People are very worried that the Dead Sea is going one day to end up without water in it. And statistics actually have shown that it is shrinking one meter every year. And if it continues like this, this is another phenomenon of climate change in some sense, I suppose, by 2050, there will be no water left 
in the Dead Sea. And where is all this water going? This is going a little bit for drinking water, a little bit for agriculture, both used by Jordan and by Israel. So for me, this was the third afterthought because it's not only a story that I identify with, it's not only a part of the world that I identify with. Jericho is beautiful. I can tell you story after story about Jericho, but also because the Dead Sea has so much relevance to our realities today. So that is a third one that I wanted to share with you as an afterthought. Saltier than Harry Hagopian in a bad mood. (laughs) That would be one way of putting it. Yes, exactly. Sorry, don't let me detract from the fourth. No, no, the fourth one is easy, but this this third one was really, uh, really nice. Now, I mean, the way he did it, the gimmicks that Spencer Tunick did to bring these people, put these nude people there and do Lot's wife and all that, that's fine. But the message is very clear. The Dead Sea is shrinking. It's drying up, guys. It shouldn't happen. It's an important water. Take care of it. Yeah, very fair point indeed. Now, conclude, Harry. Tell us what your fourth point is. And my fourth and final point, where you're despairing already at the length of this podcast, the fourth is simply a welcome to Ambassador Manar Dabbas, the new Jordanian ambassador. And why do I mention this? I mention this for two or three reasons, not least one of them being nepotism. Why? Because as some of our listeners, and you included, of course, know I was born in Jordan. And therefore, I have a certain affinity with this plucky little kingdom that is sometimes an oasis of moderation in a very immoderate and violent region. Despite instances, yes, there have been stories that concern me like they concern everybody else, but it's a country, it's a kingdom that has managed to keep the civil peace. And I just wanted to say to the new ambassador, Manar Dabbas, ahlan wa sahlan, welcome and all the best to you in your new job. And here with concludeth this podcast as far as I'm concerned, James. And I thank you so much for your patience because I dread to ask you how long we've been talking. I will not answer that question. We've been talking for a fair old while. Though, Harry, to be fair to you, I found it very interesting and I certainly hope everyone else has as well. I will trim and tidy up and snip and you know what I'll do I'll, I'll, I'll tidy it up a little bit make it a wee bit shorter but I have to say that was fascinating because you went to all kinds of places I wasn't expecting apart from our first three topics of course the Iraqi elections Yemen sadly which I knew would be a sad component to this particular podcast and then of course Lebanon for following on from the two previous podcasts but those four wonderful thoughts Harry thanks for those there was light there was darkness there was memory there was tribute and a warning I did not know the Dead Sea was literally perilously ebbing away You know about that Dead Sea, James. I remember many, many, many moons ago, a partner of mine, we were going out together and she decided to teach me how to swim. And she took me to the sea, she took me to the swimming pool, tried every single way to convince me that I can actually float on the water and that I do not have to worry about it. And every time we did this, I would tell her, listen, This is very nice. Now, can we go to the mountains and have a nice barbecue? (laughs) I think you're the only person that can sink in the Dead Sea. (laughs) Add it to one of my, what is it? Fallibilities. Fallibilities. Well, you have many talents to go with those fallibilities, Harry. So um, I'm delighted you've given us the time. And as I say, I'm sure our listeners will be as well. Now, I I always hasten to ask, especially in winter, whether you're traveling. I believe you are. I know you do plenty of traveling when obviously health and COVID permit. But will you come back next month, Harry? Find us a, a day in your diary to give us a November podcast? I will happily do that. And I've got a thought for you, James, which, dear listener, we have not discussed or rehearsed this before. So G- G- uh, James doesn't, I was going to say Jesus, but not, sorry, James. 
I don't want a messianic complex. I've got enough problems. James, James doesn't know about this. If I'm not back in November and in time for this, might I respectfully suggest that we do the next podcast with me in the Gulf and you in London? And okay, it's not going to be video. It's not going to be a face-to-face. It's still going to be virtual. But if all the technical gizmos work, and you're the technical master, and I'm the student. So if you think it works, it would be nice uh, for us to talk when you can say, and I'm now talking to Harry in Oman or Qatar or whatever. Let's do it. I mean, it should make no difference from you being around the corner, frankly. You mean you're indifferent to me whether I'm around the corner or in the Gulf? <laughs> no, it's it, no steady. It's somewhat gently reassuring to know you're around the corner, but I just meant on a technical level, it's not a problem to bring you to the ears of our listeners, even if you are in Amman or Qatar or, or wherever Wonderful. we can get hold of you. We can try that. In the meantime, dear listeners, thank you enormously for your patience. I hope that some of what I said would resonate with you, would echo somewhere a point of interest. And everybody, take care of uh, COVID. I don't care what the government line is. It's still a threat and we have to be careful, whether through boosters or through face masks or through social distancing or through common sense. Let us not do things in haste which we will then regret again this winter in leisure. Yeah, I agree, Harry. And do stay safe yourself on your travels. And I am intrigued. I can't wait for you to drop me a line from wherever you are. And we'll fix up another Middle East analysis. Thanks, James.